SciPod Books presents Space Prison by Tom Godwin, read by Mark Douglas Nelson. Episode Four of Space Prison by Tom Godwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Space Prison, Episode Four. Lake made the trip back to the caves in a fraction of the length of time it had taken him to reach the plateau, walking until he was ready to drop, and then pausing only for an hour or two of rest. He spotted Barber's camp when coming down off the plateau, and he swung to one side, to tell Barber to have a supply of the herb sent to the caves at once. He reached the caves to find half the camp in bed, and the other half dragging about listlessly at the tasks given them by Bemin. Anders was in grave condition, too weak to rise, and Dr. Chiara was dying. He squatted down beside Chiara's pallet and knew there could be no hope for him. On Chiara's pale face and in his eyes was the shadow of his own foreknowledge. "'I finally saw what it was,' Chiara's words were very low, hard to hear. "'And I told Bemin what to do. It's a deficiency disease complicated by the gravity into some form not known on earth. He stopped to rest, and Lake waited. Berry, Berry, Pelagra, we had deficiency diseases on earth, but none so fatal so quickly. I told Bemin, ration out fruits and vegetables to everybody. Hurry, or it will be too late. Again he stopped to rest, the last vestige of color gone from his face. And you? Lake asked, already knowing the answer. For me, too late. I kept thinking of viruses. Should have seen the obvious sooner. Just like... His lips turned up a little at the corners, and the chiara of the dead past smiled for the last time at Lake. Just like a damned fool intern. That was all, then, and the chamber was suddenly very quiet. Lake stood up to leave, and to speak the words that Chiara could never hear. "'We're going to need you, and miss you, doctor.' He found Bemin in the food storage cavern, supervising the work of two teenage boys with critical officiousness, although he was making no move to help them. At sight of Lake he hurried forward, the ingratiating smile sliding across his face. "'I'm glad you're back.' he said. I had to take charge when Anders got sick, and he had everything in such a mess. I've been working day and night to undo his mistakes and get the work done properly underway again." Lake looked at the two thin-faced boys who had taken advantage of the opportunity to rest. They leaned wearily against the heavy pole table Bemin had had them moving, their eyes already dull with the incipient sickness and watching him in mute appeal. "'Have you obeyed Chiara's order?' he asked. "'Ah, uh, no,' Bemin said. "'I felt it best to ignore it.' "'Why?' Lake asked. "'It would be a senseless waste of our small supply of fruit and vegetable foods to give them to people already dying. I'm afraid—' The ingratiating smile came again. "'We've been letting him exercise an authority he isn't entitled to.' He's really hardly more than a medical student, and his diagnoses are only guesses." "'He's dead,' Lake said flatly. 
His last order will be carried out." He looked from the two tired boys to Bemmon, contrasting their thinness and weariness with the way Bemmon's paunch still bulged outward and his jowls still sagged with their load of fat. "'I'll send West down to take over in here,' he said to Bemmon. "'You come with me. You and I seem to be the only two in good health here, and there's plenty of work for us to do.' The fawning expression vanished from Bemmon's face. "'I see,' he said. "'Now that I've turned Anders's muddle into organization, you'll hand my authority over to another of your favorites, and to moat me back to common labor? Setting up work quotas for sick and dying people isn't organization, Lake said. He spoke to the two boys. Both of you go lie down. West will find someone else. Then to Bemmon. Come with me. We're both going to work at common labor. They passed by the cave where Bemmon slept. Two boys were just going into it, carrying armloads of dried grass to make a mattress under Bemmon's pallet. They moved slowly, heavily. Like the two boys in the food storage cave, they were dull-eyed with the beginning of the sickness. Lake stopped to look more closely into the cave and verify something else he thought he had seen. Bemmon had discarded the prowler skins on his bed, and in their place were soft wool blankets, perhaps the only unpatched blankets the rejects possessed. "'Go back to your caves,' he said to the boys. Go to bed and rest." He looked at Bemmon. Bemmon's eyes flickered away, refusing to meet his. "'What few blankets we have are for babies and the very youngest children,' he said. His tone was coldly unemotional, but he could not keep his fists from clenching at his sides. "'You will return them at once and sleep on animal skins, as all the men and women do. And if you want grass for a mattress, you will carry it yourself as even the young children do." Bemmon made no answer, his face a sullen red and hatred shining in the eyes that still refused to meet Lake's. "'Gather up the blankets and return them,' Lake said. "'Then come on up to the central cave. We have a lot of work to do.' He could feel Bemmon's gaze burning against his back as he turned away, and he thought of what John Prentice had once said. I know he's no good, but he never has guts enough to go quite far enough to give me an excuse to whittle him down." Barber's men arrived the next day, burdened with dried herbs. These were given to the seriously ill as a supplement to the ration of fruit and vegetable foods, and were given alone to those not yet sick. Then came the period of waiting, of hoping that it was all not too late and too little. A noticeable change for the better began on the second day. A week went by, and the sick were slowly, steadily improving. The not-quite-sick were already back to normal health. There was no longer any doubt. The Ragnarok herbs would prevent a recurrence of the disease. It was, Lake thought, all so simple once you knew what to do. Hundreds had died, Chiara among them because they did not have a common herb that grew at a slightly higher elevation. Not a single life would have been lost if he could have looked a week into the future and had the herbs found and taken to the caves that much sooner. But the disease had given no warning of its coming. Nothing on Ragnarok ever seemed to give warning before it killed. 
Another week went by, and hunters began to trickle in, gaunt and exhausted, to report all the game going north up the plateau, and not a single creature left below. They were the ones who had tried and failed to withstand the high elevation of the plateau. Only two out of three hunters returned among those who had challenged the plateau. They had all tried, all of them, to the best of their ability, and the limits of their endurance. The blue star was by then a small sun, and the yellow sun blazed hotter each day. Grass began to brown and wither on the hillsides as the days went by and Lake knew summer was very near. The last hunting party, but for Craig's and Schroeder's, returned. They had very little meat, but they brought with them a large quantity of something almost as important—salt. They had found a deposit of it in an almost inaccessible region of cliffs and canyons. "'Not even the woods goats can get in there,' Stevens, the leader of that party, said. "'If the salt was in an accessible place, there would have been a salt lick there, and goats in plenty.' If woods goats care for salt the way earth animals do, Lake said, when fall comes, we'll make a salt lick and find out. Two more weeks went by, and Craig and Schroeder returned with their surviving hunters. They had followed the game to the eastern end of the snow-capped mountain range, but there the migration had drawn away from them, traveling farther each day than they could travel. They had almost waited too long before returning back. The grass at the southern end of the plateau was turning brown, and the streams were dry. They got enough water, barely, by digging seep-holes in the dry stream-beds. Lake's method of stalking unicorns under the concealment of a woods-goat skin had worked well only a few times. After that, the unicorns learned to swing downwind from any lone woods-goats. If they smelled a man inside the goatskin, they charged him and killed him. With the return of the last hunters, everything was done that could be done in preparation for summer. Inventory was taken of the total food supply, and it was even smaller than Lake had feared. It would be far from enough to last until fall brought the game back from the north, and he instituted rationing much stricter than before. The heat increased as the yellow sun blazed hotter and the blue sun grew larger. Each day the vegetation was browner and a morning came when Lake could see no green wherever he looked. They numbered eleven hundred and ten that morning, out of what had so recently been four thousand. Eleven hundred and ten thin, hungry scarecrows, who already could do nothing more than sit listlessly in the shade and wait for the hell that was coming. He thought of the food supply, so pitifully small, and of the months it would have to last. He saw the grim, inescapable future for his charges. Famine. There was nothing he could do to prevent it. He could only try to forestall complete starvation for all by cutting rations to the bare existence level. And that would be bare existence for the stronger of them. The weaker were already doomed. He had them all gather in front of the caves that evening, when the terrace was in the shadow of the ridge. He stood before them and spoke to them. "'All of you know we have only a fraction of the amount of food we need to see us through the summer. Tomorrow the present ration will be cut in half. That will be enough to live on, just barely. 
If that cut isn't made, the food supply will be gone long before fall, and all of us will die. If anyone has any food of any kind, it must be turned in to be added to the total supply. Some of you may have thought of your children, and kept a little hidden for them. I can understand why you should do that. But you must turn it in. There may possibly be some who hid food for themselves, personally. If so, I give them the first and last warning. Turn it in tonight. If any hidden cache of food is found in the future, the one who hid it will be regarded as a traitor and murderer. All of you, but for the children, will go into the chamber next to the one where the food is stored. Each of you, and there will be no exceptions, regardless of how innocent you are, will carry a bulkily folded cloth or garment. Each of you will go into the chamber alone. There will be no one in there. You will leave the food you have folded in the cloth, if any, and go out the other exit and back to your caves. No one will ever know whether the cloth you carried contained food or not. No one will ever ask. Our survival on this world, if we are to survive at all, can be only by working and sacrificing together. There can be no selfishness. What any of you may have done in the past is of no consequence. Tonight we start anew. From now on we trust one another without reserve. There will be one punishment for any who betray that trust. Death. Anders set the example by being the first to carry a folded cloth into the cave. Of them all, Lake heard later, only Bemin voiced any real indignation, warning all those in his section of the line that the order was the first step toward outright dictatorship and a police and spy system, in which Lake and the other leaders would deprive them all of freedom and dignity. Bemin insisted upon exhibiting the emptiness of the cloth he carried an action that, had he succeeded in persuading the others to follow his example, would have mercilessly exposed those who did have food they were returning. But no one followed Bemin's example, and no harm was done. As for Lake, he had worries on his mind of much greater importance than Bemin's enmity. The weeks dragged by, each longer and more terrible to endure than the one before it, as the heat steadily increased. Summer solstice arrived, and there was no escape from the heat, even in the deepest caves. There was no night. The blue sun rose in the east as the yellow sun set in the west. There was no life of any kind to be seen, not even an insect. Nothing moved across the burned land but the swirling dust-devils and shimmering, distorted mirages. The death-rate increased with appalling swiftness. The small supply of canned and dehydrated milk, fruit and vegetables was reserved exclusively for the children, but it was far insufficient in quantity. The Ragnarok herbs prevented any recurrence of the fatal deficiency disease, but they provided virtually no nourishment to help fight the heat and gravity. The stronger of the children lay wasted and listless on their pallets, while the ones not so strong died each day. Each day, thin and hollow-eyed mothers would come to plead with them to save their children. "'It would take so little to save his life! Please, before it's too late!' 
but there was so little food left and the time was yet so long until fall would bring relief from the famine that he could only answer each of them with a grim and final no. And watched the last hope flicker and die in their eyes, and watched them turn away to go and sit for the last hours beside their children. Bemin became increasingly irritable and complaining as the rationing and heat made existence a misery, insisting that Lake and the others were to blame for the food shortage, that their hunting efforts had been bungling and faint-hearted. And he implied, without actually saying so, that Lake and the others had forbidden him to go near the food chamber because they did not want a competent, honest man to check up on what they were doing. There were six hundred and three of them in the blazing afternoon when the girl, Julia, could stand his constant, vindictive, fault-finding no longer. Lake heard about it shortly afterward, the way she had turned on Bemin in a flare of temper she could control no longer, and said, "'Whenever your mouth is still, you can hear the children who are dying today. But you don't care. All you think of is yourself.' You claim Lake and the others were cowards, but you didn't dare hunt with them. You keep insinuating that they're cheating us and eating more than we are, but your belly is the only one that has any fat left on it." She never completed the sentence. Bemin's face turned livid in sudden, wild fury, and he struck her, knocking her against the rock wall so hard that she slumped unconscious to the ground. "'She's a liar!' he panted, glaring at the others. She's a rotten liar, and anybody who repeats what she said will get what she got. When Lake learned of what had happened, he did not send for Bemin at once. He wondered why Bemin's reaction had been so quick and violent, and there seemed to be only one answer. Bemin's belly was still a little fat. There could be but one way he could have kept it so. He summoned Craig, Schroeder, Barber, and Anders. They went to the chamber where Bemin slept, and there, almost at once, they found his cache. He had it buried under his pallet and hidden in the cavities along the walls—dried meat, dried fruits and milk, canned vegetables. It was an amount amazingly large, and many of the items had presumably been exhausted during the deficiency disease attack. It looks, Schroeder said, like he didn't waste any time feathering his nest when he made himself leader. The others said nothing but stood with grim, frozen faces, waiting for Lake's next action. Bring Bemin, Lake said to Craig. Craig returned with him two minutes later. Bemin stiffened at the sight of his unearthed cash and color drained away from his face. Well? Lake asked. I didn't, Bemin swallowed, I didn't know it was there. And then, quickly, you can't prove I put it there. You can't prove you didn't just now bring it in yourselves to frame me. Lake stared at Bemin, waiting. The others watched Bemin as Lake was doing, and no one spoke. The silence deepened, and Bemin began to sweat as he tried to avoid their eyes. He looked again at the damning evidence, and his defiance broke. "'It—if I hadn't taken it, it would have been wasted on people who were dying,' he said. He wiped at his sweating face. 
I won't ever do it again. I swear I won't." Lake spoke to Craig. "'You and Barber take him to the lookout point.' "'What?' Bemin's protest was cut off as Craig and Barber took him by the arms and walked him swiftly away. Lake turned to Anders. "'Get a rope,' he ordered. Anders paled a little. "'A rope? What else does he deserve?' Nothing, Anders said. Not, not after what he did. On the way out, they passed the place where Julia lay. Bemin had knocked her against the wall with such force that a sharp projection of rock had cut a deep gash in her forehead. A woman was wiping the blood from her face, and she lay limply, still unconscious. A frail shadow of the bold girl she had once been with the new life she would try to give them an almost unnoticeable little bulge in her starved thinness. The lookout point was an outjutting spur of the ridge, six hundred feet from the caves and in full view of them. A lone tree stood there, its dead limbs thrust like wide arms through the brown foliage of the limbs that still lived. Craig and Barber waited under the tree, Bemin between them. The lowering sun shone hot and bright on Bemin's face as he squinted back toward the caves at the approach of Lake and the other two. He twisted to look at Barber. "'What is it? Why do you bring me here?' There was a tremor of fear in his voice. "'What are you going to do to me?' Barber did not answer, and Bemin turned back toward Lake. He saw the rope in Anders' hand, and his face went white with comprehension. No! He threw himself back with a violence that almost tore him loose. No! No! Schroeder stepped forward to help hold him, and Lake took the rope from Anders. He fashioned a noose in it, while Bemin struggled and made panting animal sounds, his eyes fixed in horrified fascination on the rope. When the noose was finished, he threw the free end of the rope over the white limb above Bemin. He released the noose, and Barber caught it, to draw it snug around Bemin's neck. Bemin stopped struggling then, and sagged weakly. For a moment it appeared that he would faint. Then he worked his mouth soundlessly until words came. "'You won't. You can't really hang me!' Lake spoke to him. "'We're going to hang you. What you stole would have saved the lives of ten children.' You've watched the children cry because they were so hungry, and you've watched them become too weak to cry or care any more. You've watched them die each day, and each night you've secretly eaten the food that was supposed to be theirs. We're going to hang you, for the murder of children and the betrayal of our trust in you. If you have anything to say, say it now. You can't. I had a right to live. To eat would have been wasted on dying people!" Bemin twisted to appeal to the ones who held him, his words quick and ragged with hysteria. "'You can't hang me! I don't want to die!' Craig answered him, with a smile that was like the thin snarl of a wolf. "'Neither did two of my children!' Lake nodded to Craig and Schroeder, not waiting any longer. They stepped back to seize the free end of the rope, and Bemin screamed at what was coming, tearing loose from the grip of Barber. Then his scream was abruptly cut off as he was jerked into the air. There was a cracking sound, and he kicked spasmodically, 
his head setting grotesquely to one side. Craig and Schroeder and Barber watched him with hard, expressionless faces, but Anders turned quickly away, to be suddenly and violently sick. "'He was the first to betray us,' Lake said. "'Snub the rope and leave him to swing there. If there are any others like him, they'll know what to expect.' The blue sun rose as they went back to the caves. Behind them, Bemin swung and twirled aimlessly on the end of the rope. Two long, pale shadows swung and twirled with him, a yellow one to the west and a blue one to the east. Bemin was buried the next day. Someone cursed his name, and someone spat on his grave, and then he was part of the dead past as they faced the suffering ahead of them. Julia recovered, although she would always wear a ragged scar on her forehead. Anders, who had worked closely with Chiara and was trying to take his place, quieted her fears by assuring her that the baby she carried was still too small for there to be much danger of the fall causing her to lose it. Three times during the next month the wind came roaring down out of the northwest, bringing a gray dust that filled the sky and enveloped the land in a hot, smothering gloom through which the suns could not be seen. Once black clouds gathered in the distance, to pour out a cloudburst. The 1.5 gravity gave the wall of water that swept down the canyon a far greater force and velocity than it would have had on earth, and boulders the size of small houses were tossed into the air and shattered into fragments. But all the rain fell upon one small area, and not a drop fell at the caves. One single factor was in their favor, and but for it they could not have survived such intense, continual heat. There was no humidity. Water evaporated quickly in the hot, dry air, and sweat glands operated at the highest possible degree of efficiency. As a result, they drank enormous quantities of water. The average adult needed five gallons a day. All canvas had been converted into water bags, and the same principle of cooling by evaporation gave them water that was only warm instead of sickeningly hot as it would have otherwise have been. But despite the lack of humidity the heat was still far more intense than any on earth. It never ceased, day or night, never let them have a moment's relief. There was a limit to how long human flesh could bear up under it, no matter how valiant the will. Each day the toll of those who had reached that limit was greater, like a swiftly rising tide. There were three hundred and forty of them when the first rain came, the rain that meant the end of summer. The yellow sun moved southward and the blue sun shrank steadily. Grass grew again and the woods goats returned, with them the young that had been born in the north, already half the size of their mothers. For a while there was meat and green herbs. Then the prowlers came, to make hunting dangerous. Females with pups were seen, but always at a great distance, as though the prowlers, like humans, took no chances with the lives of their children. The unicorns came close behind the first prowlers, their young amazingly large and already weaned. Hunting became doubly dangerous then, but the bowmen, through necessity, were learning how to use their bows with increasing skill and deadliness. 
A salt lick for the woods goats was hopefully tried, although Lake felt dubious about it. They learned that salt was something the woods goats could either take or leave alone. And when hunters were in the vicinity, they left it alone. The game was followed for many miles to the south. The hunters returned the day the first blizzard came, roaring and screaming down over the edge of the plateau the blizzard that marked the beginning of the long, frigid winter. By then they were prepared as best they could be. Wood had been carried in great quantities and the caves fitted with crude doors and a ventilation system. And they had meat, not as much as they would need, but enough to prevent starvation. Lake took inventory of the food supply when the last hunters returned, and held check-up inventories at irregular and unannounced intervals. He found no shortages. He had expected none. Bemin's grave had long since been obliterated by drifting snow, but the rope still hung from the dead limb, the noose swinging and turning in the wind. Anders had made a Ragnarok calendar that spring, from data given him by John Prentice, and he had marked the corresponding earth dates on it. By a coincidence, Christmas came near the middle of the winter. There would be the same rationing of food on Christmas Day, but little brown trees had been cut for the children, and decorated with such ornaments as could be made from the materials at hand. There was another blizzard roaring down off the plateau Christmas morning, a white death that thundered and howled outside the caves at a temperature of more than eighty degrees below zero. But inside the caves it was warm by the fires and under the little brown trees were toys that had been patiently whittled from wood or sewn from scraps of cloth and animal skins, while the children slept. They were crude and humble toys, but the pale, thin faces of the children were bright with delight when they beheld them. There was the laughter of children at play, a sound that had not been heard for many months, and someone singing the old, old songs. For a few fleeting hours that day, for the first and last time on Ragnarok, there was the magic of an earth Christmas. That night a child was born to Julia, on a pallet of dried grass and prowler skins. She asked for her baby before she died, and they let her have it. "'I wasn't afraid, was I?' she asked. "'But I wish it wasn't so dark. I wish I could see my baby before I go.' They took the baby from her arms when she was gone, and removed from it the blanket that had kept her from learning that her child was stillborn. There were two hundred and fifty of them when the first violent storms of spring came. By then eighteen children had been born. Sixteen were stillborn, eight of them deformed by the gravity, but two were like any normal babies on earth. There was only one difference. The 1.5 gravity did not seem to affect them as much as it had the earth-born babies. Lake himself married that spring, a tall gray-eyed girl who had fought alongside the men the night of the storm when the prowlers broke into John Prentice's camp, and Schroeder married the last of them all to do so. End of Episode 4